Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you once again for taking the time to join me. I really, really appreciate it. And this week, we're going to be getting back to the Those We Don't Speak Of series. I believe this is episode 10, if I'm not mistaken. So, welcome, guys. I hope you enjoy this. And if you haven't heard the other episodes on this series, you don't have to worry about it. Because I don't really go in any specific order. Now, this week, we're going to be looking at a speech by Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky, And if you have heard the other episodes, then you'll be somewhat familiar with him, but he was the leader of what was called Revisionist Zionism. And his idea was a bit different than most of the mainstream Zionists at the time. They were trying to get things done diplomatically and through political aims and means and connections and different things like that. And Jabotinsky wanted to speed up the process by taking what they wanted by force. Now, he was also one of the leaders of the Aragoon, who was a terrorist organization, who went on to bomb the King David Hotel, injuring and killing quite a few people, also bombing officers' clubs and invading a prison and different things like that. So they had a bunch of terrorist plots that they carried out on the Brits in mandated Palestine, as well as some of the Arab population. Now, If you'll remember, the Brits had taken over Ottoman Palestine from the Turks, and they had their British mandate where they were allowing a certain amount of people, a certain amount of Jews, to move into Palestine. Well, the Zionists didn't like that. They just wanted the Brits to hand it right over, despite there being nearly 800,000 Arabs in Palestine at the time. So that's why they started bombing the Brits. And 
After a while, the Brits got tired of it, and they had all these terrorist actions going on, and it just got out of hand, and they decided to hand it on over to what is now considered political Israel, despite all those Arabs living there. So this is in 1923. This is a speech by Vladimir Ziev Jabotinsky. And by the way, if you didn't hear the other episodes, Jabotinsky, well, his secretary, one of his secretaries, was Benjamin Netanyahu's father. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, when we did the Congress on Cultural Freedom episodes, we learned that Arthur Kosler was also a secretary of Jabotinsky at one time. Now, let's get to this speech because I think it's important to kind of understand that early on they had aims and they were pretty clear about it, although they were keeping a lot of this hidden from the Western media. And this is in the Hidden History of Zionism. It says, in 1923, Jabotinsky wrote The Iron Wall. I mean, we've all heard of The Iron Wall, The Iron Dome, which could be called a benchmark essay for the entire Zionist movement. He set forth bluntly the essential premises of Zionism, which had, indeed, been laid out before, if not as eloquently, by Theodore Herzl, Haim Weizmann, and others. Jabotinsky's reasoning had been cited and reflected in subsequent Zionist advocacy from nominal left to so-called right. He wrote as follows, There can be no discussion of voluntary reconciliation between us and the Arabs, not now and not in the foreseeable future. All well-meaning people, with the exception of those blind from birth, understood long ago the complete impossibility of arriving at a voluntary agreement with the Arabs of Palestine for the transformation of Palestine from an Arab country to a country with a Jewish majority. Each of you has some general understanding of the history of colonization. Try to find even one example when the colonization of a country took place with the agreement of the native population. Such an event has never occurred. Just to break here for a second, we hear from modern Zionists and people like John Hagee that Palestine was never even a place. And when you mention colonization, they really hate it when you say that kind of thing and say there's never been such a thing. But we know that they indeed talked about colonization early on. It was just a known thing that that's what they were doing. They were very open about it. And even the, uh, I think it was called Pika, the Palestinian, I forget now, I'll have to find it. But anyway, it was run by one of the Rothschilds and it it had the name colonization in the title. It was an organization. So we'll continue the speech here. The natives will always struggle obstinately against the colonists, and it is all the same whether they are cultured or uncultured. The comrades-in-arms of Hernan Cortez or Francisco Pizarro conducted themselves like brigands. The Redskins fought with uncompromising fervor against both evil and good-hearted colonizers. The natives struggled because any kind of colonization anywhere at any time is inadmissible to any native people. Isn't it interesting that he is referring to the Palestinians as natives? And of course, we hear just the opposite nowadays. Any native people view their country as their national home, of which they will be complete masters. They will never voluntarily allow a new master. So it is for the Arabs. Compromisers among us tried to convince us that the Arabs are some kind of fools who can be tricked with hidden formulations of our basic goals. 
I flatly refuse to accept this view of the Palestinian Arabs. They have the precise psychology that we have. They look upon Palestine with the same instinctive love and true fervor that any Aztec looked upon his Mexico or any Sioux upon his prairie. Each people will struggle against colonizers until the last spark of hope that they can avoid the dangers of conquest and colonization is extinguished. The Palestinians will struggle in this way until there is hardly a spark of hope. It matters not what kind of words we use to explain our colonization. Colonization has its own integral and inescapable meaning understood by every Jew and by every Arab. Colonization has only one goal. This is the nature of things. To change that nature is impossible. It has been necessary to carry on colonization against the will of the Palestinian Arabs, and the same conditions exist now. Even an agreement with non-Palestinians represents the same kind of fantasy. In order for Arab nationalists of Baghdad and Mecca and Damascus to agree to pay so serious a price, they would have to refuse to maintain the Arab character of Palestine. We cannot give any compensation for Palestine, neither to the Palestinians nor to other Arabs. Therefore, a voluntary agreement is inconceivable. All colonization, even the most restricted, must continue in defiance of the will of the native population. Therefore, it can continue and develop only under the shield of force, which comprises an iron wall through which the local population can never break through. This is our Arab policy. To formulate it any other way would be hypocrisy. Whether through the Balfour Declaration or the British Mandate, external force is a necessity for establishing in the country conditions of rule and defense through which the local population, regardless of what it wishes, will be deprived of the possibility of impeding our colonization administratively or physically. Force must play its role with strength and without indulgence. In this, there are no meaningful differences between our militarists and our vegetarians. I'm not sure what that means. One prefers an iron wall of Jewish bayonets and the other iron wall of English bayonets. I'm not sure if that's a misprint or maybe I'm just not smart enough to understand that. To the reproach that this point of view is unethical, I answer, absolutely untrue. This is our ethic. There's no other ethic. As long as there is the faintest spark of hope for the Arabs to impede us, they will not sell us these hopes, not for any sweet words nor for any tasty morsel, because this is not a rabble but a people, a living people, and no people makes such an enormous concession on such fateful questions, except there is no hope left until we have removed every opening visible in the iron wall. I think that clears up quite a few things about their original intent, and they try to deny that to this day, but Jabotinsky is one of their most revered heroes. Now let's look here. It continues about the metaphor of iron, and I thought this was kind of interesting. The theme and imagery of coercive iron and steel evoked by Vladimir Jabotinsky was to be taken up by the nascent National Socialist Movement in Germany, even as Jabotinsky had in turn been inspired by Benito Mussolini, the mystical invocation of iron will, in the service of martial and chauvinist conquest, 
United Zionist colonial and fascist ideologues. It sought its legitimacy in the legends of a conquering past. Cecil B. DeMille's Samson and Delilah was more than a Hollywood biblical romance about the perfidy of woman and the virtue of manly strength. It carried as well the authoritarian values of the novel from which it was adopted. Vladimir Jabotinsky's Samson, which trumpeted the necessity of brute force if the Israelites were to conquer the Philistines. Shall I give our people a message from you? Samson thought for a while and then said slowly, The first word is iron. They must get iron. They must give everything they have for iron. Their silver and wheat, oil and wine, and flocks, and even their wives and daughters, all for iron! Exclamation mark. There is nothing in the world more valuable than iron. Jabotinsky, the siren of iron wall, through which the local population cannot break through, and of the iron law of every colonizing movement, armed force, found his call echoed in major Zionist forays against victim peoples in the decades to come. Israel's Minister of Defense, Yitzhak Rabin, launched the 1967 war as chief of staff with iron will. I believe that Yitzhak Rabin had also been a member of the terrorist organization Lehi. As prime minister in 1975 and in 1976, he declared the policy of Hayad Barzil, the Iron Hand in the West Bank. Over 300,000 Palestinians were to pass through Israeli prisons under the conditions of sustained and institutionalized torture exposed by the Sunday Times of London and denounced by Amnesty International. His successor as chief of staff, Raphael Eaton, imposed the Iron Arm on the West Bank, and assassination was added to the repressive arsenal. On July 17, 1982, the Israeli cabinet met to prepare what the London Sunday Times would term this carefully pre-planned military operation to purge the camps called Moa Barzel, or Iron Brain. The camps were Sabra and Shatila, and the operation was familiar to Sharon and Begin, Menachem Begin, part of Sharon's larger plan discussed by the Israeli cabinet. When Yitzhak Rabin, who had supported the revisionist Likud party in Lebanon during the war, and remember that the Likud party formed out of the Lehi terrorist organization, and Likud was basically formed out of followers of Jabotinsky. And so that is, you know, part of Israeli government there today. The Likud party is one of the ruling governments in this new formed faction that Netanyahu has put together. Also with Ben Gavir, the guy that's making a big splash over there, he's very controversial because he's in a party called the Jewish Power Party. We'll get into that later on. But that's one of the reasons why people have been really upset since, I think, January, since the elections. Let's move on here. When Yitzhak Rabin, who had supported the revisionist Likud in Lebanon during the war, became Shimon Peres Minister of Defense in the current National Unity Government, remember this book's a few years old, he launched in Lebanon and the West Bank the policy of Igruf Barzil, or the Iron Fist, it is the Iron Fist, which Rabin again cited as the basis for his policy of allowed repression and collective punishment during the 1987 to 1988 Palestinian uprising in the West Bank in Gaza. 
It's interesting to recall as well that Jabotinsky located his colonial impulse in the doctrine of the purity of blood. Jabotinsky spelled this out in his letter on autonomy. It is impossible for a man to become assimilated with people whose blood is different than his own. In order to become assimilated, he must change his body. He must become one of them in blood. There can be no assimilation. We shall never allow such things as mixed marriage because the preservation of national integrity is impossible except by means of racial purity. And for that purpose, we shall have this territory where our people will constitute the racially pure inhabitants. Now, can you imagine if anyone else said that, anyone else besides those we don't speak of? Well, they have a complete pass to do just about anything they want, and this is clear evidence of that. Now, there was a reason, if you go back to the episodes, why they called Jabotinsky Little Mussolini or even the Jewish Hitler, because he did like fascism. And so that's why author Lenny Brenner talks about that so much, that this faction of Zionism, this revisionist Zionism, they admired fascism, they wanted to be fascists, they were racists, they were all about what Hitler ended up doing, just they wanted to do it from their point of view, and they're still doing that today. And when they talk about purification, they're talking about killing the Arabs and the non-Jews. That is their idea of purification, purifying the land. No one else could get away with this, and no one else should. Let's look even deeper. This theme was further elaborated by Jabotinsky. Quote, The source of national feeling lies in a man's blood, in his ratio, physico-type, and in that alone. A man's spiritual outlook is primarily determined by his physical structure. For that reason, we do not believe in spiritual assimilation. It is inconceivable from the physical point of view that a Jew born to a family of pure Jewish blood can become adapted to the spiritual outlook of a German or a Frenchman. He may be wholly imbued with the German fluid, but the nucleus of his spiritual structure will always remain Jewish. Now, I'll just ask you to think a little bit about some of the things we've talked about in the past. The refusal to assimilate often caused them a lot of hardship. And we look into, instead of this kind of romanticized reason of, well, this was this awesome people who've always stood for what they believed in, and you know we should respect that. Okay, we can respect that to a certain degree. But what you also have to understand is all this comes with racial superiority. They felt they were superior, and they still do, and they feel like they're the chosen people. But also, as we talk about so often, you get back to the 613 mitzvahs and the Talmud and all the horrible things that are in the Talmud. And I've been posting some of this stuff on my Gab and in Facebook and different places like that. I don't know how many people actually get what I'm posting and how important these mitzvah are in this age of them and the Chabad pushing the Noahide laws in America and all over the world. But people need to definitely look into the Noahides and ask themselves why presidents are signing Noahide agreements that honor the laws and honor the Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Sneerson. What was he to us as Americans? So I think we need to look at what's going on. 
Now let's go ahead and finish this up here. The adoption of chauvinist doctrines of racial purity and the logic of the blood were not confined to Jabotinsky or to the revisionists. The liberal philosopher Martin Buber located his Zionism equally within the framework of European racist doctrine. Quote, the deepest layers of our being are determined by blood. Our innermost thinking and our will are colored by it. Unquote. So that's just a little bit of what was going on at the time early on and how they knew exactly what they were going to do. They had their goals and aims and they had this international network in place at the time to get it done. And now that international network has expanded like you wouldn't believe. You could literally spend days looking at all these different organizations, these NGOs, these tax-exempt foundations that are dedicated to nothing but bettering Israel, bettering GovCorp of Israel. We're talking the big shots in government and the big shots in business, which are often the same. Now that we've looked at this from the past, let's go ahead and look at modern Israel and the current controversy in the newly formed government. Now, we were talking about why the people are so upset over in Israel about this newly formed government. And we talked about how you have the Likud party, which is already the fundamentalist party ran by these crazy rabbis. But now you have a mixture of the Likud party with the Jewish Power Party, which is basically like if the white nationalist party were to take over here. Now, the main guy who is getting a lot of press is Itamar Ben-Gavir. And this guy was, in the 80s and even 90s, a follower of a guy named Mer Kahan. Now, Mer Kahan was a Jewish leader as well, and he was known just like Jabotinsky, to be against mixed marriages, be very, very racist towards anyone who's a non-Jew, and was like pushing all this Talmudic law onto the people, this overly legalistic law, the kind of things that Christ was warning about when he was talking to the Pharisees. And if you understand how the rabbinical messianics, the lineage from the Bible to this day, comes directly from the Pharisees. And so I don't have to tell any of you that have read the red letters of Jesus Christ condemning the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and crazy legalism. So that's what we're dealing with here. And that's why it pisses me off to no end that all these evangelistic Christian ministers blindly support and defend these guys. When these guys, I think you'll remember if you listen to maybe two those we don't speak of episodes ago. We were talking about Gershom Sholem in one of his books, the professor from Hebrew University, and he was explaining how these rabbinical messianics believe that Edom, which is what they call Christianity and Rome and all that, most non-Jewish nations are called Edom, but the West in particular, has to die, has to be destroyed for them to have their utopia. So that's what a lot of these evangelistic Creatures are teaching, and that's the kind of churches I've grown up in. And, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in church until here recently, on a regular basis anyway, and I'm realizing how bad these dispensationalist teachings and this Christian Zionism has become. It's the norm now, and it used to be kind of a fringe kind of thing, but now it's been taught so much in these 
schools that have been overtaken by these dispensationalists and Zionists, that now it's become the norm through decades and decades of propaganda. So many of the biblical teachings that were seen in a certain way by the majority for almost 2,000 years, 1,900 years, and you have Reverend Blackstone and Darby and Schofield, and especially the Schofield reference notes, and all of a sudden they inject this dispensationalism, this premillennial idea, this rapture, all this nonsense, which was completely and totally pro-Zionist, and they twist the words and the verses, and they take verses that were talking about predictions, which would go on to happen a few years or decades later, they put those on the future now and say they're about to happen. They were predictions, prophecies about current times, and they do that all the time, and they mix the two, they blur the lines, and it's really disgusting because it's very, very political. And not all of them know that they're doing it because they've just been brought up that way, again, because it's become so popular. But back to the current government. So you've got this guy, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's very controversial for his past racist statements against Americans, against Arabs especially. Now he's working with Netanyahu. He comes from this Jewish power party, as I mentioned. And he worked and was a follower of this Mir Kahan, this other Israeli leader, who was very racist as well. And that's why, one of the reasons why you're seeing so many people revolting against this new faction over there. They're trying to instill these Noahide and Talmudic laws over there, and they want to instill them all over the world. That's why you keep seeing all this stuff about the seven Noahides. And when you mention it, they're like, oh, it's just in symbolism only. It's just symbolic. But it's not. We'll look also at a guy, which I think this is very interesting, who was a murderer, killed over 40 people. His name was Baruch Goldstein, and he was a follower of Mir Kahan as well. Now, he killed a whole bunch of Arabs and, and injured nearly 100, if I'm not mistaken. Let's see here. The BBC, this was Tuesday, March 21st, 2000. Graveside Party celebrates Hebron Massacre. They hold this guy up, in high regard because he killed those Arabs. He just went crazy and started shooting. And it was on a holy site here. It was at a mosque. Let's see if I can see this. This is Newsweek 1994. Is that March 1994? Uh, and then also here is New York Times, 40 slain in West Bank Mosque riot. 40 slain in West Bank Mosque as Israeli militant opens fire. Sounds of chanting and gunfire echo in a town awash in blood. Now, this Baruch Goldstein, not only is he held up as a hero by these fundamentalist nut jobs, but they actually have a memorial, pretty nice memorial over there in Israel, in the park where his mentor, Mir Kahan, is buried. It's a park named after Mir Kahan, the Mir Kahan Park. And this guy was a scumbag too, but he was assassinated, this Mir Kahan. And if you'll notice, they actually have a museum dedicated to, it was either the Lehi or the Stern Gang, maybe both. And certainly they have memorials for both the Stern Gang leaders and the Lehi leaders over there. And these guys, again, were 
And these guys, again, were terrorists. They were the, they were basically like what we consider Islamic terrorism to be from all the propaganda and the stuff that's happened since 9-11. Well, they got it from these guys. And again, these fundamentalists go there to celebrate this guy, this murderer, this Goldstein guy, and they put rocks on his gravesite. I put pictures of that and the newspaper headlines on my Gab account if you want to check it out. So again, that's what the controversy is. And I've heard a minister say recently, well, the, uh, you know, the left wing, the, the liberal Jews over there in Israel are just pissed off because Netanyahu's trying to get the laws back the way they were before. It's just conservative versus Democrat versus liberal, which is really BS. They are trying to reinstate these crazy Talmudic laws. And they want to do that here, too, with the Noahide laws. And let me look here. There's a book about, it's very detailed, the Noahide laws and what they want to implement and what laws will affect Christians and non-Jews and what laws will affect Jews. It's a huge book, over 800 pages. But, man, it would be a good one to have around because it lets you know it's not as simple as just seven Noahide laws. They're bylaws. Sub-laws, and I think I learned most of this from the Ben Noons, Israeli News Live, and Deanna Loper, who talks about that in her book, Kabbalah Secrets Christians Need to Know. Those are two great sources. Let me see if I can find that book here about the seven Noahide laws and all the Noahide laws. It's called The Divine Code by Rabbi Moshe Weiner. It's edited by Dr. Michael Shulman. Let's see here. The Divine Code... The Guide to Observing the Noahide Code Revealed from Mount Sinai in the Torah of Moses. So they're basically trying to say it comes from the oral law, mostly, that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai, which really, if you look at the oral law, the Mishnah, the Talmud, all that, that stuff's come from the Pharisaical rabbis over a period of centuries and centuries. And we even read in the Zohar that anybody who interprets Torah pretty much however they want, is blessed. So we read that Rabbi Shimon bar Yohai said, if you don't look at the Torah as having multiple meanings, then you are going to hell. So it's basically anything goes. Hey guys, let me take a moment to clarify. I have made a mistake here on this episode, and I have possibly made this mistake in the past. When I talk about the two terrorist organizations that were working in British-mandated Palestine, the Israeli terrorist organizations, well, there were two. There was the Irgun, led by Vladimir Jabotinsky and Yitzhak Rabin. Then there was the Leahy, or the Stern Gang, and that was named after Avram Stern, who was the leader of that particular terrorist organization. Now, I've got them kind of mixed up on this episode a few times. When I should have been saying Aragoon, I was saying Leahy. And I just get that mixed up because we also have the Likud party, which is Netanyahu's party, which sprang out of the Aragoon. Now, again, Vladimir Jabotinsky was a leader of both the Aragoon and the Beitar gang or Beitar militia, if you will. So... That's where I was getting those things mixed up. A lot of organizations there that you have to remember that, you know, we haven't grown up hearing, so it's kind of easy to get those kind of uh, mixed up. So I apologize, and I do urge you to look into both the Irgun 
and the Stern Gang, Leahy, and find out for yourselves. That way it'll be more familiar with you the next time we mention them. So again, I apologize, and thank you so much for having the patience with me, and we'll get back to the show. Now, to kind of help bring a little bit of this terrorist history to the forefront to help you guys kind of understand that it was a real thing that did get reported on to a degree, but not the way it should. Now, I've got a few newspaper headlines here and a paragraph from each one. This is from the Reform Advocate, July 28, 1944. The Irgun Zvi Lumi, which is their official title, Outlawed Jewish terrorist organization posted placards throughout the city during the night, assuming responsibility for the bombing of Jerusalem District Police Headquarters last Friday, in which one policeman was killed and several seriously injured. The posters charged that the police were torturing captured terrorists and said that the bombings and other terroristic activities will continue until the Palestine government surrenders control of the immigration to the Jews. Police headquarters in Jerusalem announced this week that many arrests have been made in connection with the bombing. The announcement did not give any further details. Here we got an article from the Sentinel, December 28, 1961. Headline, The Irgun Workers to Get Civil Service Pensions. Again, these were terrorists, and they're getting civil service pensions. This is from... Originally, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The Civil Service Commission announced this week that recognition will be accorded in computing pension and severance payments to civil servants for service in the Irgun, the pre-state revisionist underground organization conducted by Menachem Begin and the Lohemi Herut Yisrael, a similar organization. The action followed a recommendation to that effect approved by the Knesset, Israel's parliament, by a 36 to 18 vote. Previously, such recognition had been accorded to those with records of service in the Haganah, the pre-state Jewish defense organization, the Jewish agency, and other recognized organizations whose employees went into the government service when the Jewish state was established. It had been withheld from employees of the two underground organizations, or terrorist organizations. Now here's one. Let's see here. This is from the American Jewish World, October 3rd, 1947. Ergun kills 10 in dawn blasting of Haifa police post. This again was in the JTA originally. The Ergun's Vailumi blasted British police headquarters in Haifa in a dawn explosion that took the lives of 10 persons and injured about 70 others. Four Jews were seized for an alleged participation in the attack. An official announcement said that the dead were four British and four Arab policemen, an Arab girl, and an Arab street vendor. The wounded included 28 British constables, a British police sergeant, and 14 Jewish and 11 Arab civilians. Thirteen of the constables suffered serious injuries. An Irgun announcement termed the operation Hambaf, asserting that it was in retaliation both for the landing of the Exodus refugees at Hamburg and the deportation to Cyprus of 432 refugees whose vessel was captured over the weekend. All right, here's one from 1946 from the Benibreth Messenger. It's kind of jumbled up. There's some misspelling, so it's kind of hard to read. But basically, the headline is, 
Aragoon takes responsibility for the King David hotel bombing. Aragoon's Vilumi, the underground terrorist group, took upon itself the blame for the destruction of the King David Hotel, with a death toll of 48, countless missing, and 58 injured. I won't read the rest because, like I said, it is jumbled up. Let's go to the next one here. This is from the Australian Jewish Times, 1979. Aragoon Hero is a Yiddish Memorial Day orator. The Lithuania-born Israeli parliamentarian Dov Shalonsky, M.K., joined the Irgun, operating as the leader of the organization's branch in southern Italy. He will be the special Yiddish speaker at this year's Jewish Day of Remembrance service at the NSW Jewish War Memorial Community Center on Tuesday, April 24th. He will be supported by the world president of B'nai B'rith, Jack Spitzer, who will be the English speaker. Israeli consul General David Ben-Dove will also address the gathering to be chaired by the Board of Deputies President Robert Goot. Leahy Leader Honored The building in South Tel Aviv in which Avram Yer Stern, now this is Leahy, the Stern Gang, not the Aragoon, so I'll read that again. The building in South Tel Aviv in which Avram Yer Stern, leader of the pre-state underground group named Leahy, died a prisoner of Britain 39 years ago. He has been formally handed over to the Defense Ministry. It will be converted into a museum commemorating the underground leader and his small activist movement. It's great how they call it activist when it was this very violent terrorist organization. Stern is said to have been wantonly shot in the house by a British officer following his capture. Israel's Prime Minister, Mr. Menachem Begin, said that the museum would be a tribute to Yer in the very building in which his innocent martyr's blood was shed. I think this is interesting because the way that they laud these terrorists and twist everything around so much, and they know that probably 95% of Americans and people around the world will never look into this stuff and never know the difference. Now, here is another one. Menachem Begin's choice of Leahy pals to key posts Anger's NRP. Begin's choice of Leahy Pals to keep hosts Anger's NRP. Likud leader Menachem Begin has raised the hackles of his prospective coalition partner, the National Religious Party, and has elicited no small amount of grumbling within its own faction by appointing veterans of the underground fighting group Leahy to key government and Knesset posts. His appointments are regarded by some of his colleagues as arbitrary and authoritarian. Begin has defended them on the grounds that he was selecting the best people for the appropriate jobs. The angriest protest came from the NRP after Begin announced that he was naming former Leahy member Gula Cohen as Deputy Minister of Education and Culture. The Education Ministry has been assigned to the NRP's Zavulin Hammer and the religious party was furious that it had not been consulted or even informed in advance of Begin's intentions. Party Secretary Zvi Bernstein said it was inconceivable that such a decision could be made without prior consultation with us. He said this was a matter on which all parties to the coalition should have been consulted. Got another one here. Stern Gang, or Leahy's, secret out after 36 years. The 36-year-old story of the existence of Leahy 
or the Stern Gang spy in the British military headquarters at the King David Hotel was revealed here last week. A former British Army clerk, now living in Tel Aviv, says he worked for Israel's independence from Britain 36 years ago by feeding secret information to the Stern Gang. David Rubovitz, now 67 and semi-retired, has revealed a tale of lax British security. The efforts of a small, determined group to humiliate an imperial power and rivalry among Jewish independence groups. He said that as a clerk in the headquarters of the British Army's transport section in Jerusalem, he had access to the positions and the movements of British troops, which he fed to the Stern Gang for plotting ambushes. Rubovitz said he wanted to put the record straight. The revelations of David Rubovitz, whose family came to Palestine 130 years ago, sparked off again the old controversy between the labor sector and the Likud revisionist sector as to who was responsible for the expulsion of the British forces from Palestine in 1948. Departure. The Likud sources took the Rubovitz line that the revisionist movement contributed to the British departure by their terrorist acts against the British armed forces and the hanging of two British sergeants. Labor revived the old argument that had it not been for the socialist movement's establishment of the strategic settlements in Israel, the Likud measures would not have been effective. Israeli sources also disclosed the fact that Alexander Rubovitz, a cousin of David and a member of Lehi, was abducted by the British and ultimately liquidated. Alexander was age 16 at the time of death. Now, this is one that you may not have heard of. There was a representative from Sweden who had actually been on the Zionist side as far as trying to get more Jews into Palestine. But he made the mistake of actually coming into Palestine and seeing the situation that was going on with the Arabs, and they were in such dire straits after the establishment of the Jewish state, that he couldn't help but speak out about it. And they assassinated him. It says here, Israel won't apologize for the 1948 assassination. Israel has refused to offer an apology demanded by Sweden for the 1948 assassination of UN mediator Folk Bernadotte, a Swedish diplomat, by members of the underground Stern Gang. Israel apologized for the killing immediately after it occurred 40 years ago, but Sweden insists a second apology is due because a former member of the Stern Gang, Yehoshua Zietler, admitted to the crime in an interview published in the Yediat Akronat newspaper last weekend. The Israeli ambassador Moshe Irel was summoned to the foreign ministry in Stockholm last week to receive the demand. Israel promptly rejected it on grounds that no new evidence has come to light since 1948 to warrant another apology. The Yediat Akronat article, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but whatever, reported what has been generally known over the years that the Stern Gang, known by the acronym Lehi, ordered the murder of Bernadotte. The motivation was his alleged plans to internationalize Jerusalem and award the Arabs large areas of Palestine that Israeli forces had captured in the 1948 War of Independence. Zietler told the newspaper he decided to go on the record because Israel is again threatened by international and internal pressures. Our action then, in 1948, must serve as an example to the new generation, he said. Zietler said four people carried out the assassination, but that Premier 
Yitzhak Shamir, then one of the leaders of the Stern Gang, was not directly implicated in the act. A former Leahy theoretician, Yisrael Eldar, claims, however, that Shamir was, in fact, one of the four men responsible for planning the assassinations. That was also from the JTA in 1988. The terrorist attack on the Goldsmith Officers Club, Saturday, March 1st, 1947. At half past three on the afternoon of the 1st of March, a vehicle drove into the wire defenses of the Goldsmith Officers Club in Jerusalem while the guards were engaged by machine gun fire from terrorists who had taken up position outside the wire defenses. A heavy explosion followed, which destroyed a considerable part of the building. A few hours later, an attack was carried out on a car parked at Hoffa, and a number of vehicles were wrecked. Other less serious outrages, of which full reports are not yet fully available, occurred in other parts of the country. Total casualties so far reported in this day of violence amount to 18 killed and 25 injured, of whom a number are civilians. In the last month, 48 outrages have occurred in which 20 people have lost their lives and 31 have been injured. Attack on Acre Prison, the 4th of May, 1947. Disguised as British troops and with apparently the correct documents, such as movement orders and identity papers, the Irgun blasted their way into the prison. Jewish inmates obviously knew ahead of time as they then collaborated in the attack and the escape. To add to the confusion and panic, grenades were lobbed into the part of the prison which held those mentally unfit. A number of imprisoned Aragoon terrorists and more than 100 Arabs escaped, but there were troops in the vicinity and fighting resulted. Most of the escapees got away, but eight Jews were killed and 13 captured, many of them wounded. One of the attackers was Eton Livni, a Pole, the father of Tzipi Livni, an Israeli politician. And lastly here, we have a memorial for Avram Stern, which was the leader of the Stern Gang, or the Leahy, which the British actually shot and killed. This was in 1962. A large crowd participates in a memorial rally for the commander of the Leahy underground Avram Stern Gang, whose poster is presented on stage. Young boys light memorial candles. The mayor of Tel Aviv, Mordecai Namir, and member of the Knesset, Menachem Begin, stand with the crowd for a moment of silence and then give speeches. Stern's widow, Roni Burstein, is present at the ceremony. Again, keep in mind, this guy was a violent terrorist. 72 years after the assassination of Avram Yer Stern, the leader of the Leahy movement and its first commander of about 350 people, including Leahy fighters, second, third, and fourth generations of fighters, members of the Beitar and Benai Akiva youth movements. Members of the Knesset and ministers came on Sunday to take part in the national memorial service held at the Nakalat Yitzhak Cemetery in Givatayim. Among those present at the memorial service were Yair Stern, the son of Avram Stern, and the Stern family, Limor Livnot, Minister of Culture and Sport, Ofer Akunis, Deputy Minister in the Prime Minister's Office, Yair Shamir, Minister of Agriculture, Interior Minister Gideon Sahar, M.K. Tazai Hanjebi, Chair of the Knesset Committee, Chief Rabbi David Law, and IDF Chief Cantor Lieutenant Colonel Shai Abramson. 
The Lehi Museum also reported that more than 250 visitors visited the museum on Sunday morning. So I just wanted to kind of make clear this history of the Lehi Stern Gang and the Irgun and how they relate to modern Israel. And they really hold these guys up in high regard. Even as we learned earlier in the episode, Goldstein, the guy that killed the Arabs at a mosque, I think 48 Arabs, if I'm not mistaken, and injured a bunch of others, he's, he's got a memorial there. But we just got to be honest about it. They have a license to do anything they want. Damn the rest of the world because they feel they are the chosen ones. And it looks like our politicians are all in on it. I mean, Kevin McCarthy and 20 of our congressmen, they may still be over there. They were over there just a couple of days ago in Israel making dirty deals. And we've got the great conservative hope, the new Reagan Ron DeSantis, who was over there again for like the third time in the, like the last couple of years, making more deals and signing these agreements against free speech, which really amount to what's we're moving towards with the supposedly finding anti-Semitic laws and policies. And what it amounts to is, as I've said before, outlawing any criticism of anyone who is related to Israel, who may be Jewish, you know, their government, their business policies. You cannot talk about any of it. You cannot boycott their businesses. I mean, we're holding these people up on a pedestal. All while, as we've learned, the rabbis who lead the country are teaching that Edom, the West, Christianity, has to be destroyed for them to have their utopia. So we're paying for them to have a utopia. We're giving them license to do any damn thing they want. So they're killing us, and we're paying them to do it. And there's no other way around it. We just have to face the ugly truth. All right, guys, this brings us to the end of Those We Don't Speak Of, Part 10. Thank you so much for hanging out with me, taking the time to listen to this show. As always, I hope you got a lot out of it, or at least something out of it that you can remember and take with you forever. I hope that I said some things that you will never forget and that helps you to kind of navigate your way through this crazy world that we live in because a lot of this history is directly related to today and I don't believe you can understand current events or forthcoming events fully without understanding the past. And, you know, one of the things that I try to point out by doing this series I'm not helping myself at all. I'm not making many new friends by any chance. In fact, even in my own personal life, it kind of limits me even more than I already was as far as my social life because most people, even though they know what I'm saying is true, they don't really want to talk about it. And I don't blame them. It's the world that we were kind of brought into, and it's very hard to kind of go against something that you've always thought was true. And so I'm basically going up against the best propaganda machine, the best propaganda network to ever exist. And I full well know that. And I'm realizing that more and more every day. So that's why it is very important to share the show if you did enjoy it, if you did get something out of it. Because 
look, this content is not popular. It's not getting put out there. I'm not getting asked on any big shows to talk about this, and I won't because it's forbidden. It's it's taboo. And as I was talking about earlier, you see people like Ron DeSantis and others signing more and more of these policies, making it harder and harder to talk about the subject that I'm talking about right now. And yes, they are pushing for it to be completely unlawful for you to critique anyone connected to this subject. So while we can, please share the show, tell others about it. And if you feel led to it and you did get something out of it, feel free to become a supporter of the show. And you can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash the odd men out. And speaking of Patreon, I want to thank my very, very wonderful patrons, very patient patrons, because it's been kind of slow putting things out lately just because of my home life, my family life. But I am trying, and I've got a ton of stuff that I'm working on, and just getting it all together is quite a task because now I'm at the point where I have so much information. Kind of pulling it all together is quite... Well, it takes quite a bit of time, honestly. It takes a lot of time, and then there's the editing and all that stuff. So, anyway, I'm not complaining. I want to bring this information regardless. I want to do my little part. So, if you want to help me, again, that's patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. And I want to thank my patrons right now. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. And please check out Ruckus's content on Alternate Current Radio as well as TNT Radio. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark from Housatonic. Please check out all of Mark's work, and you can find Mark on Twitter. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John William Brisson, for being a covert co-conspirator. And please check out all of John's work. You can find John on Twitter and all of his links at We've Read. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you to Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. I just did that show yesterday, and we've got great feedback from that. So please check out all of Jack's content as well. I'll be bringing you more content, Lord willing, soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. Dream with me of a shining gleam of daylight. Of a darkened glimpse of midnight Of a chance to survive Scream with me When the reaper comes a-calling When the cold rain is falling When a youth has passed us by Evil may rip us to pieces while we sleep Cancer may rob us of our lives Sickness may cause our hearts not to beat, but on going, our souls will survive. On going, our souls will survive.
This grave holds the body of the deadliest Jewish terrorist in the history of the modern state of Israel. 25 years ago, Baruch Goldstein, an American-Israeli settler, walked into the Ibrahimi Mosque armed with a Galil rifle and 140 rounds of ammunition. As 800 Muslim worshippers knelt down in prayer during the holy month of Ramadan, Goldstein opened fire, killing 29 men and children and injuring another 125. I was one years old, but uh, was like uh, all my family talking about it because uh, my cousin, he was killed in that massacre inside the mosque. This street used to be a bustling market. Shops now are closed and the streets are deserted. The consequences were also political. 25 years later, that extreme fringe is still causing controversy. Goldstein's portrait still hangs in Hebron, on the wall of Itamar Ben-Gvir, a former Kahana organizer and activist, and one of the more prominent members of the Otsma Yehudit political party. Netanyahu has also urged Otsma Yehudit to join the right-wing nationalist Jewish Home and National Union parties and become a single party that would ally with him in the next parliament. The move has been widely condemned across the political spectrum, but Ben-Gvir says the party is not Kahana's. I'm against killing Arabs. I've said this hundreds of times in public. I do think that Dr. Goldstein was a doctor who saved the lives of my friends. I do feel that I owe him. And by the way, my views are known. Yes, I'm in favor of the death penalty for terrorists. Yes, I'm in favor of deporting those who are not loyal to the state of Israel. The specter of the massacre still haunts the city, from the ghost town of the former Palestinian market to the shade of Israel's former radical political past, once again vying for power. This is considered the most right-wing government in Israel's history, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. This is the National Security Minister. He was once convicted of incitement to racism and belonging to a terrorist organization. And this is the Finance Minister. He's advocated for permanent Israeli rule over the West Bank without giving Palestinians the right to vote. Many of these politicians are strongly in favor of the judicial overhaul plan that sparked massive protests and created a rift with allies. While Netanyahu now says he wants to seek compromise, he needs to keep the support of his coalition in order to stay in power. Just a few years ago, it looked like his political career might be over. In 2019, he was indicted on bribery and fraud charges, which he denies. And in 2021, his rivals agreed to form a new government to oust him. But Netanyahu didn't back down. He fought the charges, and even though he was still on trial during the campaign, he pulled off an election victory by uniting right-wing, ultra-nationalist, and religiously conservative parties. 
That opened the door for people like Itamar Ben-Gavir, leader of the Jewish Power Party, to secure top government positions. Politicians in Netanyahu's government support all kinds of divisive policies, but one of their biggest priorities is to overhaul the country's judicial system so that they, as politicians, can override Supreme Court decisions that they don't agree with. So why is this judicial overhaul such a big deal to them? Unlike in the U.S. and some other Western countries, Israel doesn't have a written constitution. Judges are picked by a judicial selection committee, not politicians, and they base their decisions on British common law, evolving Israeli precedent, and a series of basic laws. Supporters of this system say it provides checks and balances against parliament. But for decades, Israel's right wing has accused the court of having a left wing bias. For example, most Israelis are subject to mandatory military service, but many in Netanyahu's government want ultra-Orthodox Jews to be exempt from it so that they can study Jewish texts full-time. But when Parliament passed a law on that a few years ago, the court struck it down, saying it was unconstitutional. So fast forward to January when Netanyahu and his allies took power. They put out proposals to completely change the system like giving lawmakers power on the committee that appoints judges, making it easier for parliament to overrule Supreme Court decisions, and making it harder for judges to strike down parliament's laws. The proposals set off a wave of protests, with demonstrators saying the overhaul would weaken Israel's checks and balances. This is emergency time for the democracy of Israel. Crucially, scores of Israeli reservists said they would refuse to serve if the reforms passed. On the other side, supporters of the proposals also demonstrated, demanding that the proposals move forward. And they were cheered on by some in Netanyahu's cabinet, who tweeted videos and thanked them for their support. With flights grounded, schools shut, and banks closed, Netanyahu pressed pause, and his coalition agreed to suspend some of the more contentious issues until after Passover. But the showdown is far from over. Some in Netanyahu's coalition are still vowing to press ahead with the reforms. At the same time, Netanyahu is facing pressure from Israeli citizens who continue to demonstrate, and the United States, which is Israel's largest security partner. Like many strong supporters of Israel, I'm very concerned. Netanyahu responded, saying Israel is a sovereign country which makes its decisions by the will of its people and not based on pressures from abroad, including from the best of friends. Now, analysts say if Netanyahu really wants to reach a consensus, he'll have to give members of his coalition something in return. Already, he has agreed to give Ben Gavir, the national security minister, even more power by handing him control of the National Guard, a move that would put the ultra-nationalist in charge of handling protests.